Thank you for tuning into our podcast, History's Top 3, brought to you by the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy located in Annapolis, Maryland. In this show, we will discuss and debate some of the key turning points, trends, and major figures of world history. Our goal is to explore the varied landscapes and seascapes of the past in the hopes of shedding some light on the way the present world came to be. In our studio today are our three co-hosts, Professor Lori Bogle, Lieutenant Terrence Viernes, and myself, Captain Bob Q. All of us are instructors and lifelong students of history. In this new season of the Top 3, each of us will present our top choice for today's theme. We will then discuss how we made our choices and why we believe they deserve a place in the Top 3. We invite you to share your thoughts and engage in the discussion. Today, we're discussing the top three lesser-known civil rights leaders. We'll talk about why we chose each individual and why we think they are not as well-known as more prominent figures. Terrence, would you like to start us off? Yeah, thanks, Bob. Uh, I'd like to talk about Larry Itliong. He's a Filipino civil rights leader from the 1960s. He was born in Pangasinan, Philippines in 1913, and he immigrated to the United States in 1929 when he was only 15 years old. Like many other Filipino immigrants at the time, he came to the U.S. to find work and escape poverty and economic hardship. It's worth noting that Itliong joined many thousands of Filipinos in a decades-long immigration wave that was part of the American colonial project in the Philippines, which lasted from 1898 to 1946. The U.S. government actively recruited Filipinos to work in various industries, including agriculture, as part of its colonial project. As a result, many Filipinos including Itliong, were able to legally immigrate and work in the U.S. as migrant laborers. In fact, even the Naval Academy employed Filipino mess attendants. In the 1920 edition of the Lucky Bag, USNA's yearbook, they're even referred to as goo-goos. This misrepresentation of Filipinos, while not ideal, suggested a national atmosphere of harsher racial discrimination against non-white populations in the U.S., Despite actively recruiting and promoting legal migrant labor, the country's xenophobic laws and mores made working and living conditions especially difficult for Filipinos and other ethnic groups. In this environment, Itliong saw firsthand how individual workers were powerless in the face of the wealthy and powerful industries in which they worked. His experiences of racial and economic injustice helped inspire his lifetime activism. Reviewing his activist resume, so to speak, might be jarring at first. How? Was he responsible for organizing protests at salmon canneries in Alaska, farms in California's Central Valley, and fields in Washington State during the 1930s? This movement up and down the West Coast reflects migrant workers following the growing and harvesting seasons across many agricultural industries. As a result, these workers were often bound by exploitative contracts that offered neither great pay nor benefits. Unfortunately, his early campaigns for better working conditions and compensation met very limited success. Itliong is best known for his role in the Delano Grape Strike of September 1965, which was one of the most significant labor movements in American history. But this story really began when Itliong and Filipino farm workers won concessions from companies in the vineyards of Coachella, California. Capitalizing on that momentum, Itliong who was then the head of the predominantly Filipino Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee, reached out to Cesar Chavez, the leader of the predominantly Mexican National Farm Workers Association, so that they can coordinate their efforts and broadly improve working conditions and wages for California farm workers. Together, they formed and led the United Farm Workers Movement. Itliong's other contributions to the grape strike was crucial. Although he was out of the spotlight, he built alliances between Filipino and Mexican workers who had traditionally been divided along ethnic lines. 
He did so by establishing common kitchens in which workers, regardless of ethnicity, could bond over shared meals and enjoy each culture's unique cuisine. It Leong also persuaded regional grocery stores to stop carrying Delano grapes in support of the strike. By 1970, more than 30 Delano grape growers agreed to a pay increase for the workers, as well as medical insurance plans and established controls over toxic pesticides. Despite the importance of his role in the Delano grape strike, It Leong's legacy has been largely overlooked in mainstream American history. This is partly due to the fact that he was a Filipino immigrant and therefore faced significant discrimination and marginalization in American society. Thanks for sharing that, Terrence. That's a really interesting story, especially the contrast with the much more widely known figure of Cesar Chavez. You know, I'm curious, what was the personal relationship like between Chavez and It Leong? Yeah, great question, man. And I describe it as tense. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't find many sources that directly spoke to that relationship. Uh, but there are accounts that speak of their differences in leadership philosophy and activism strategy, right? Larry Itleong's son, uh, Johnny, described his father as militant, whereas Chavez was nonviolent. Right? So that characterization makes sense because Filipino activists were used to violence against scabs or the people who would fill in after a uh, walkout or a strike. You know, so Filipinos would be violent towards scabs who crossed the picket lines and they were uncomfortable with hunger strikes, marches or religious pageantry, things that uh, Cesar Chavez and his movement may be associated with. Uh, also, as mentioned before, Itleong was keen to collaborate and build bridges, but Chavez kept his distance with lawyers uh, getting in the way, and he trusted a very small circle. So it's difficult to imagine that these two might have personally gotten along. And do you think that's why Itleong is a little bit less well-known, that he's kind of under the shadow of Chavez? Partially, yes. Yes, I would say that the differences are... I would say that the reason we know Chavez a whole lot more now is because he was the more prominent public figure. He was right. the one who was keen to be in front of cameras, go on uh, radio, make the public appearances. Right? It Leong worked in the shadows, worked in the background, and did not receive that same kind of exposure, right? which is unfortunate in this case because he was such a big, big player in the UFW. Terrence, would you say that he was a communist or was influenced by communists? Actually, yeah. Um, he was oh. accused of being a communist uh, and unfortunately got blacklisted uh, for a lot of jobs because of that. Uh, this was all coming around during the time of McCarthyism, the oh, Red right. Scare of the 1950s, right? And this is still before his time as the uh, you know as influential leader during the Delano Grape Strike, but uh, his association with a lot of very leftist, very Marxist Filipino labor organizers got him that reputation. Could you say that his communist leanings led to him not being remembered as well. Yes, yes. Actually, that is a very, very good uh, good way to, to put it because this man is blacklisted. Why would anyone want to associate with someone who has a big bullseye in the back, uh, on their back, right? Um, I don't think it is the primary reason as to why he's not so uh, well-remembered today, but it is definitely a contributing factor. Terrence, thanks for sharing that. Lori, would you like to go next and share your nomination? Sure, thanks. I would like to nominate Judge William Hasty. He was a very well-known figure during the New Deal, World War II, and the early Cold War, but it's not remembered today, so I think he makes an excellent example of why civil rights individuals are remembered or not remembered. He was a jurist, a labor 
leader and a radical in civil rights for his day, but more of a bureaucrat than a protest leader. He should be remembered, in my opinion, for getting some justice during a very unjust time, during World War II especially, because he stayed true to his principles and refused to become propaganda for the government's Double V campaign during the war. To give a short background, during World War I, a call went out to African Americans from the government and also civil rights leaders to support the country in its war effort. A promise was given that in return, fair treatment would follow uh, in the aftermath of the war and more civil rights would come to African Americans. Those promises of fair treatment didn't follow through, however, and in the 1920s there were a series of lynchings, especially of men in uniform, African Americans coming back from France, and a number of race riots, the most infamous currently is, uh, that is remembered is the Tulsa race riot. As mobilization for World War II began, the OWI, or the Office of War Information, was concerned that they might not have full support from the black community. So they sent out a bunch of surveys to try to measure what the public opinion among blacks were for the war effort. And what they found troubled them. They found out that uh, black children were taking the side of the Japanese. Uh, this came after uh, Pearl Harbor even. And that the black community at large had a reluctance to give support to the war effort unless they could have more security in the promises that were given. In the aftermath of those, those surveys that were sent out, the government worked with uh, civil rights leaders and formed the Double V Campaign, which is really interesting because in its design, it promised that there would be victory first against the enemy overseas and then the enemy within against uh, uh, discrimination against African Americans. But the slogan that became popular was victory at home in civil rights as well as abroad, and that difference says everything about Judge Hasty and why he should be remembered. Judge Hasty had come from an elite African-American family, had gone to Harvard, graduated, went on to Harvard Law School, became a lawyer for the NAACP, and during the New Deal, Judge Hasty became frustrated when he did not get all the results he had hoped for. African-Americans did not get equal treatment in the New Deal programs. They, there were some advances that were made, but it wasn't as equitable as he had hoped. So when America started mobilizing for World War II, Roosevelt appointed Hasty to become uh, Henry L. Stimson's the Secretary of War uh, advisor on African-Americans. When Hasty was appointed to the position, he was very skeptical at, at how effective he would be because his position as an advisor had no real authority. So when Stimson made it clear that he wasn't going to back him on moving toward integration, he's going to go public and use the press as much as he can to get the American public on his side. The other thing he's going to do is try to convince the military that it's going to be uh, time-consuming and costly not to integrate, and those are his two main methods that he used. He's ultimately not going to be successful as much as he wanted to be, but the progress he does make is important to the civil rights movement that follows World War II. The two items that will make him ultimately resign from his position are, one, he felt that the Army Air Force should be easy to integrate compared to any of the other uh, services, but uh, General Henry Arnold felt that airplanes were too intimate of a space for African Americans and whites to be intermingled, so black pilots can be trained separately, and that is the ultimate issue that will make him resign from the position. It follows closely behind the one that I want to highlight today, and that is the blood supply. 
Before America became involved in World War II, the Surgeon Gener Generals of the Army and the Navy had gone to the Red Cross, and they told the Red Cross that they would only accept blood from white donors. The suggestion was, and this is prior to the war actually, uh, America actually being in the war, was that blacks would not be put into combat, so therefore they didn't want to have the problem of segregating the blood, and they would just take blood from white donors. The reasons they gave were that black, that black blood was inferior. It could carry African-American characteristics into the children of service personnel that wow. received that blood, and that society would never allow such an integration to happen. While all doctors will testify and do papers and try to convince the Red Cross that this wasn't so, that, that the integration of the blood supply was fine, Britain had been integrating the blood since the beginning of the war with no problems. Americans were pretty adamant that they didn't want the integration of blood. And additionally, they didn't care about other races, Japanese, Hispanic, being part of the white blood supply. They were only concerned about black blood being included. So with the resignations of the inventor of plasma and how to preserve blood in order for the transfusion to happen, but also the threat that Judge Hasey was going to resign as well. That pressure made the Red Cross have to alter its policy, and the Red Cross decided to accept black blood after all. However, they decided to segregate it. When the Red Cross compromised by allowing segregated blood, the Double B campaign thought that would settle the matter and we could move on and unify African Americans with whites on the war effort. But instead of doing that, it rallied African Americans to protest more widely. They were furious that the blood supply was going to be segregated. And Hasty, well, resigned in the end over those two issues. While Judge Hasty was ultimately unsuccessful in getting the blood supply integrated, his efforts to do so, however, rallied the civil rights movement in a way that had not happened up to that point. The civil rights movement had been divided over some issues. The NAACP didn't want to take certain kinds of cases. Uh, other organizations wanted to fight it a different way. But this blood supply issue seemed to galvanize everyone into fighting against racism in the military. And the blood supply issue was really more symbolic than real. The Red Cross was never very careful in labeling their donations. And when the need for blood after, war, uh, after Pearl Harbor just overwhelmed the Red Cross, they really were encouraging blacks to donate. The way the civil rights movement galvanized around this is that blacks refused to donate because the supply was segregated. So the Red Cross will then camouflage black donations by labeling them AA for African American and trying to make it as not distinguishable so it's hard to read. Medics on the field would give blood that was at hand. They'd never worried that much about what race had, had donated the blood. And so in that way, it was very symbolic and rather than a, an actual problem. After World War II, Judge Hasty went on to being governor of the Virgin Islands. He also was one of the uh, lawyers that was involved in Brown versus Board of Education. He was considered for the Supreme Court by President Kennedy, and he probably would have been nominated if Kennedy had not been assassinated. But he's not well remembered as a civil rights leader. Uh, you know, I'm curious, the, I'd like to ask about the thing you closed off with, which is the fact that he's not remembered more. Why do you think it is that he's not remembered more? And what was his interaction like with the nascent civil rights movements of the time? He was a bureaucrat more than anything else. So while people during World War II are seeing his name in the paper a lot, especially in the black press, right. the government had an active campaign not to publicize 
the efforts that he was going through to, to integrate the services. Oh, wow. So it was kept kind of quiet. But I looked to a, an article I read by Larry Griffin and Kenneth Bullen on the public memory of civil rights for my understanding of why he's not that well remembered. And they give a couple of criteria for what you need to have in your uh, narrative in order to be remembered well by right. the public. And one of them is that it needs to be an issue that's very emotionally charged. I think he fits that one, that the blood, blood right, supply. Right, the blood, absolutely. Also, the, the lack of uh, uh, integrated training right. uh, for African Americans is emotionally charged. But he kind of lacks in some of the others uh, criteria. And one is to, it needs to fit a narrative of civil rights that links to other civil rights leaders. Interesting. And those individuals that came in World War II and before have a harder time linking with uh, Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders, and right. so they're often not remembered because of that. Another criteria was that uh, they need to have a popular culture link, and if you have a film, it's better <laughs> than if you don't. And there is no film on this, though I think one could be made. Uh, oh, yeah. But Certainly at least like an yeah. HBO miniseries or something. Right? Oh, <laughs> usually those are even better treatments. Yeah. Yeah. But the narrative of civil rights has a, an arc to it, Sort of like a captivity uh, accounts in the colonial era, oh, the first activity account that came out, uh, Indian captivity. All those that were published after it kind of follow the same narrative. Right. They make their facts fit. The civil rights that come after World War II have a narrative that right. of, of uh, discrimination, of a, a, a righteous individual rising up out of that experience and then uh, taking public scorn and leading forth and having some kind of victory, maybe not complete victory, but some kind. And he doesn't quite fit those kind of, uh, that kind of narrative. I found it fascinating that British doctors actually had scientific evidence to support that, or not even scientific evidence, but the British doctors had experience with blood from their African populations and mixing it with other British citizens and having no, no um, adverse effects. Right? But did the American doctors or the people who were keen to keep the blood segregated, did they have any kind of scientific evidence or uh, any experience that would have indicated otherwise? No, all doctors agreed, what, no matter what country they came for, from, that there wouldn't be a problem. And the Red Cross eventually will admit that the reason that they had the policy they do is just cultural, that uh, uh, white soldiers would be very unhappy with this possibility that they would get black blood. But the fact that other blood was allowed to be mingled in, other minorities, kind of shows how racist the country was, in a sense. Not to say other countries are not racist, but in America, the idea of getting uh, Japanese blood when we're fighting against the Japanese, you would think would be uh, a very big concern, but it was no concern whatsoever that wow. they found. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. You imagine how many lives could have been saved. Right, yeah. Thanks, Lauren. I'm going to close things off with my nomination, uh, which is for Mildred Loving. And so I think it's great, actually, that you mentioned the, the things that you need for a civil rights figure to be remembered, uh, because Mildred Loving actually was relatively recently the subject of a movie. And I think that's actually helped her story a little bit. Uh, but regardless, uh, for those who have not heard of her, uh, Mildred Loving was a key figure. In fact, you can make a good argument that she was the key figure in the fight for interracial marriage equality. You know, Mildred Loving was born Mildred Jeter in Central Point, a small rural town in Virginia. Uh, she was part Native American, part African American. Uh, and in 1958, she married Richard Loving, who was a white man. 
problem was that interracial marriage at this time was illegal in Virginia. And so in order to get married, the couple decided to travel to Washington, D.C. to perform the ceremony. After they got married, though, they came back to Central Point. After all, that's where they were from, that's where their family still lived, and that's where they wanted to start their lives together, uh, raise a family. Fortunately, the county police had other plans. In a particularly heinous episode, they were arrested by a county sheriff who had barged into their home uh, in the middle of the night based on an anonymous tip. Uh, They were arrested for violating the state's anti-miscegenation laws, they were charged with a felony, and they were faced with a choice. Either go to prison or leave Virginia. Not a great choice. Uh, Mildred and Richard, under the threat of prison, chose to move to D.C. Uh, They lived there for the next five years, but they didn't want to. First, they didn't particularly enjoy city life, uh, and they wanted to do what many Americans want to do, just live in the town where they grew up, close to family and friends, and raise their children there. Uh, Mildred felt this particularly strongly, and eventually she decided to write a letter to Robert Kennedy, who was then the attorney general. Kennedy referred her to the ACLU. The ACLU sued the state of Virginia on her behalf, challenging the state's anti-miscegenation laws. The case eventually went all the way to the Supreme Court, uh, and in the 1967 Supreme Court case, Loving versus Virginia, uh, the court unanimously overturned Virginia's Racial Integrity Act, which had been the law banning interracial marriages. Now, this is a huge movement in the civil rights movement. You know, first off, this is the same year of the long, hot summer of 1967, where major race riots break out in 150 cities across the U.S. Uh, this is just a few years after the Civil Rights Act was signed, a year before Martin Luther King is assassinated. So it's right square in the middle of this time period of the big, well-known moments of the civil rights movement. You know, I, I chose Mildred Loving for a couple of reasons. First is the sheer importance of the issue at stake. You know, it's hard to think of many things more fundamental to human life as marriage. And Laura, you you talking about this article and how one of the criteria needs to be that, oh, you know, it needs to be something that provokes an emotional response. The idea of being able to marry who you, whom you want, whom you love, uh, is a hugely emotional issue, right? Uh, it's also interesting because historically, anti-miscegenation laws and bans against interracial marriage had been a key tactic in efforts to enforce racial division in American society, going all the way back to colonial times. And there's actually a really rich, interesting historiography about this and the role that these laws played in the racialization and institutionalization of slavery. Uh, so that makes the significance of her case all the more important. And so it's interesting that, in you know, many ways, Mildred Loving fits a lot of these criteria in the article, um, but, but she's still not super well-remembered. And, and I think the other thing I really like about her story is how normal it and she was. You know, Loving was not really and never really becomes a, quote, professional activist, for lack of a better term. Uh, she doesn't really have much involvement with the civil rights movement and other civil rights leaders before the court case. And she doesn't really do a ton of activism after the case either. She and Richard just moved back to Virginia and lived pretty normal lives, raised children, have grandchildren. Um, And and that's what I actually find really poignant about her story. In many ways, she's just a normal woman who wants to do a perfectly normal thing. Of course, she's living in a time when there are enormous obstacles to that normal thing, and it took exceptional courage and perseverance to keep fighting those obstacles. I think that combination of the exceptional and the mundane is what makes her story really special for me. Bob, thanks for that. That that bit at the end, especially with you know painting Mildred as this perfect combination of exceptional and mundane, uh, was really really evocative for me. But my question is that you know as an as a non-native Virginian, as a tourist, one might say, I'm constantly bombarded with these 
uh, with a saying that Virginia is for lovers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is there a connection between this case and that state slogan? You know, the irony is that it, there is no connection. Uh, I think often when the people still hear the story, that's one of the first things they ask. Uh, because, you know, good for Virginia. They did an amazing ad campaign with the whole Virginia is for lovers tagline. Um, and I think when people learn about loving versus Virginia, uh, that's one of the first things that people think of. And, and actually, it first became a popular slogan uh, around 1969, so shortly after this case. Uh, however, the, the ad agency uh, that produced the slogan, they've been interviewed, the, the agent's been interviewed, and uh, they've said that contrary to what other people might think, there's actually no uh, connection to the court case. Uh, mildly so, disappointing. Mildly disappointing, <laughs> yes, but uh, apparently it's straight from the horse's mouth. I'm just thinking now, uh, how would you uh, gauge their impact, their story's impact, compared to other civil rights leaders? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, when we're talking about the impact of individuals in history, I often think about counterfactuals, right? Um, you know, counterfactual history is not always considered the most reputable type, but I think it's an interesting way, especially if you're thinking specifically about the impact of individuals. And I guess the counterfactual would be, you know, if Mildred Loving had not written that letter to the ACLU, uh, would interracial marriage laws have still been uh, overturned or struck down eventually, right? Um, I think the answer is probably yes, eventually, just because interracial marriage or specifically the anti-miscegenation laws were such a stark symbol of the uh, of the injustices and the, the racial division of the time. So I think it's it's hard to think about the civil rights movement proceeding in the 1960s and the 1970s without it eventually turning its sights towards uh, anti-miscegenation laws, right? Um, that said, I, I think it's it, it's still important that she was the one who uh, was the person who kicked this all of this off, right? Um, you know, it, it, Rosa Parks might be another good example, right? Like, yes, she was she was the individual who made it happen. W would someone eventually have challenged uh, the segregation of buses? Would someone eventually have done all of that? Yeah, maybe. But I think it's still important to give credit for the people who do take that first step. So symbolism is really important. I like in so. the blood supply issue, exactly. it was more symbolic than a, a real problem. Um, and with Rosa Parks, even, she wasn't the first person yes. that had done this, but yet she was the right person in the sense that the leaders thought she had the characteristics they wanted right. in the person that would go forward. And, and that's actually, again, this whole idea of she was just, Mildred Loving was just a normal woman. That, that's actually kind of something I like about this, right? Because it's not like Rosa Parks, it's not like it was staged, right? But there was clearly some planning and calculation that went into her being the person in that moment. Uh, because there had been this prior incident, right? But for various reasons, that wasn't the incident that wound up uh, winding its way through the legal system. Um, but from what I understand, no one had been actively coaching Mildred Loving into doing this, right? And the ACLU didn't reach out to her. Uh, she simply wanted something. She wanted to be able to live with her husband in the town they grew up in. Uh, and that, that to me, there's a, there's a level of authenticity to that that I really appreciate about her story. You 
know, I think this idea that we started with and that we wanted to get back to is this question of why it is that some of these individuals are remembered well and why some of them are not. You know, I think Laurie's uh, framework of there are these criteria that individuals have to have is really interesting, right? Laura, you talked a little bit about why uh, Judge Hasty didn't quite fit. Um, you know, I think I proposed some reasons why Mildred Loving doesn't quite fit. You know, Terrence, do you think there's a reason kind of based on the framework Laurie presented where, why Larry Leong doesn't quite fit? Actually, I think that the one of the biggest reasons that he's not nearly as remembered as others is that there's just not an awful lot recorded of him, aside from his own personal adventures in his younger days. But when he finally hits, you know, or when he finally gets involved with the UFW and then he's he has the opportunity to be part of the mainstream, he kind of recedes into the background. And he's just another cog in that bigger machine where with Chavez really driving the ship, right, or operating that entire machine so because not an awful lot survives or not an awful lot of accounts of him directly uh have been preserved it's difficult to build a picture of who he is and it's difficult to start drawing associations or finding symbolism or any other kind of association other than he's filipino and he's a civil rights activist right but just being Filipino itself is, a, I suppose, a pretty big deal, and that's that's a reason I picked him. You know, uh, there's not an awful lot of those kinds of luminaries in the Filipino community here in the United States, and so it's it's nice to bring attention to somebody who did play kind of a fundamental role here. So, if a historian comes along that writes the book that gives the emotionally charged issue in his life, plus a movie follows, <laughs> then he may be better remembered after that. I think so. I, I'd like to think so. But then I, I suspect that there's going to be a lot of dramatization here. Right? Right. Hollywood's going to have to take quite a lot of uh, <laughs> uh, artistic liberties. Well, it's interesting because he does seem to fit the criteria of connection to other civil rights leaders, right? He has this very close relationship, even if somewhat tense at times, with Chavez, which should fit him in the mainstream. Um, but yeah, it seems like he, he doesn't quite fit within this narrative. You know, and I think this idea that there is almost a trope or, or an expectation for the way that civil rights stories are supposed to go is, is really interesting, right? I think it really says something about the way that our expectations for stories still colors the kind of people that we remember and that we don't. And with that, we'll close off. Uh, because while there's plenty more to debate on this subject, while there always is, we'll save that for a round of drinks between friends. Uh, from all of us here at the U.S. Naval Academy, particularly at the History Department, thank you for tuning in. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.